With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to Amicus Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate. This will be the first amicus podcast that takes place post-inauguration, which means that you, me, and everyone else now lives in the President Donald Trump era. Among the many things that that implicates are Jeff Sessions and his bid to be the U.S. Attorney General, a nomination that is now pending in the Senate. For those of you who weren't in the room for his testimony, let me just note that Sessions, among other things, said that, in his view, lawyers who are secular or not religious are going to have a harder time grasping what he calls truth. So let's sit with that for a minute. And let's think about the fact that Donald Trump has said he'll announce his nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court in the coming days. In addition to all of that, this week, the court heard several fascinating cases, and we're going to discuss them on the show today. One of them had to do with the government's searches and arrests and detentions of immigrants, including many Muslims, in the days after 9-11. Then Attorney General John Ashcroft and other officials from the Bush administration are still trying to shut down a lawsuit over the way these men were treated. I should note that that treatment included strip searches, beatings, and other brutal abuses, some of which lasted months and months. But first, we turn to another case argued Wednesday at the high court posing this question. What's in a name or what's in a band's name or maybe more aptly, what's not in a band's name? This is a case that pits a group called The Slants. This is the self-described first and only all Asian American dance rock band against the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. The PTO refused in this case to issue the band a trademark for their band name on the theory that the word slants actually disparages Asians. This dispute has been bouncing around for five years. It was argued before the high court this week. Eagerly watching and, in fact, participating in this dispute by way of an amicus brief is, in fact, the Washington Redskins organization. They're involved in their own trademark dispute, questioning whether the word Redskins is disparaging. Joining us in the manner of all rock stars from his car in Portland, Oregon, is Simon Tam, who is the bassist and founder of The Slants. Simon was at the court Wednesday, which I think is not one of his usual concert gig venues. Uh, So, Simon, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Simon, I wonder if you could just start by telling listeners about the genesis of your band, The Slants, and what you were thinking about when you picked this name. Well, you know, I started the band, uh, the band idea, I should say, came to me about 2004. Uh, It was a very specific moment when I was watching the film Kill Bill, uh, because there's a scene where this woman named Warren Ishii walks into a restaurant with her gang of crazy 80s, 
the Yakuza mafia that she led. Now, for for most people, it's just another like trademark uh, Quentin Tarantino scene of people like his main characters walking in and they make kind of a dramatic entrance. But at the time, it was kind of like a, an epiphany for me uh, because I realized at that moment it was the first time that I had ever seen Asian Americans depicted as cool, confident, and sexy on screen by an American-produced film. And so I started thinking about the lack of representation in other areas, especially in my own area of music, and how despite having over 17 million Asian Americans in this country, we had almost no representation in the entertainment industry. Uh, you know, we never see them on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Our music videos weren't being played on MTV back when they used to play music videos. So I realized there was this absence that I wanted to create something that would celebrate our culture and kind of provide that representation. And at the same time, I wanted to take down a lot of the false stereotypes about us. So I started asking uh, friends, my, my white friends around, I said, you know, what's something that you think all Asians have in common? And the, they almost always immediately said slanted eyes. So I thought, you know, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, because number one, it simply isn't true. Not all Asian Americans have slanted eyes. And, and of course, uh, Asians aren't the only uh, ethnic identities to have them. And number two, we could talk about our slant on life, what it's like to be people of color, uh, while at the same time using this outdated and obscure racial slur and turning it on its head. Uh, so, you know, as a, as a rock musician, I thought, Wow, this is something that Debbie Harry could front, a band called The Slant, kind of that 80s new wave band name. Now, Simon, I think one of the cultural arguments undergirding this whole dispute, you know, you're having a very, very wonky trademark dispute, but one of the cultural arguments underneath it is this question about whether this kind of cultural reappropriation really works and, you know, whether it's, you know, rappers appropriating or reappropriating the N-word or groups like Dykes on Bikes or the magazine Hebe, this idea that this actually doesn't achieve the end you're seeking to achieve, all it does is make it okay to say something that is, in fact, disparaging. Sure. And, and I completely understand that kind of concern. But in the end, it's simply just speculative. There's no actual evidence of that. On the other side of things is um, every single sociological and psychological study ever done on the reclaiming of stigmatizing labels and words. And in every single study, you actually find that power shifts from the dominant group to the oppressed group and that it actually increases self-confidence and empowers that group to, uh, in, the, in even a way where they get treated differently by the dominant group. Um, we can see how it has been effective if you go far enough back because this is a practice that's actually been done for thousands of years. It's not just only in recent history. The, the term Christian used to be a pejorative and uh, back in the day, you know, Christians were persecuted. Uh, however, over time, it, you know, became one of the world's biggest religions. Same thing with the term Mormons uh, in, in the religious area. Mormons didn't want to be called that. They wanted to be called Latter-day Saints. It's only been in recent decades that they kind of shifted that position and took ownership of it. Um, and, you know, you could see that again and again with other identities, whether it be the term queer or kind of older 
phrases like a guido. Uh, I mean, there, there have been numerous studies that have been done on it. And what we see is that oftentimes it's not necessarily accepted because it's not a clean, easy-to-understand system. Uh, for me, that's why it is so effective. It's effective because it's complex, and complex things oftentimes disrupt social norms. Simon, talk a little bit. I think this is the other sort of table-setting move I'm going to ask you to make. The administration, even the Obama administration, has actually had no problem with the ban, the slants, and presumably the name of the ban, the slants, in other contexts. This is, in some sense, a weird push-me-pull-you where you're in a fight with the patent and trademark office on the one hand, but on the other hand, your message has actually been embraced in other parts of this administration, right? That's correct. Uh, Everyone from the Department of Defense to federal uh, penitentiary systems to actually the White House initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have called us champions of the Asian American community and worked with us to put out an album, actually. Uh, in regards to the, the trademark office, I think that, you know, they're genuinely concerned that uh, registering trademarks that could be seen as disparaging or revoking this uh, kind of outdated law will lead to this Pandora's box of hate speech upon the world And, of course, they fear that those trademarks will be associated with the federal government. Well, let's use that to segue into the case itself. Uh, Let me see if I've got the facts straight. In 2011, the Patent and Trade Office, the PTO, rejected your trademark application because of a, a pretty obscure provision in the Lanham Act that prohibits the government from approving a trademark that contains quote, matter which may disparage uh, people living or dead, uh, institution beliefs, and national symbols. So this all begins when they do exactly what you just said. They said, listen, we don't want to put the government's imprimatur on something that disparages Asians. Can you take us from there now? Sure. And actually, the case begins a couple of years before that. We've actually had two applications before the Patent and Trademark Office. And for the government, they don't actually take rejections lightly. I mean, they, it tends to be kind of this rubber stamp process where almost every registration gets approved, provided that they meet the basic kind of government criteria. Um, so for the government, they say, in order for us to reject it on these grounds, it has to be disparaging to a substantial composite of Asian Americans. The problem is they don't actually define what substantial composite means. So when we first began, we appealed uh, using legal declarations or testimonies from members of the Asian American community, uh, for example, executive directors from numerous social justice organizations. We had uh, a couple of independent national surveys conducted, which showed that 92 to 98 percent of our community supported us, and uh, dictionary experts, including one of the editors at the New American Oxford Dictionary, who did an extensive report showing how slant was pretty obscure to begin with as a racial slur, but over time had been used to create social change to the point where it's now embraced as a term of self-empowerment. All that lost. The, The trademark office instead supported their claim by using online dictionaries like uh, urbandictionary.com, wiki sites, and photographs of Miley Cyrus pulling her eyes back in a slant-eyed gesture, saying that those were evidence that 
social norms had not changed enough. And even though they had not found a single Asian American who would claim that it was disparaging, uh, they believed that that was enough evidence to trump all the evidence provided from, from our community. So in 2011, when we went back again, um, our attorney suggested we actually change tactics. He said, well, you know, as long as you try and appeal saying we're not offensive, you're never going to win. Is it because no one who's ever appealed has ever won And then in the 71 years that this law has been on the books? Instead, we submitted what he called an ethnic neutral uh, application. Uh, there was no imagery on there uh, that could indicate we were Asian American. There was, uh, we didn't say it was an Asian American band. It was just a band. The only thing kind of Asian about it was my Chinese name. The, the thinking was that, well, slant is not an inherent racial slur, unlike uh, other things that are out there. It's actually a neutral word with many different definitions. The government came back and rejected it again, copying and pasting all of their previous responses. And that's when we asked them, we said, well, hold on, if slant is an inherent racial slur like you say it is, why have you registered it hundreds of times? This is the only case that's been ever denied in uh, trademark history on the grounds of being disparaging to Asians. So why did you label slant uh, as a racial slur in this case, but not in other cases? The trademark office replied, it is incontestable that the applicant is of Asian descent and part of an Asian van. In other words, they said if this was a non-Asian van, this would not have been an issue. Or more explicitly, anyone can register a trademark for the slants as long as they're not Asian. Because they said you have to look at the mark in its context. And our racial identities as a live music band provide the context for the word. And in their opinion, having Asians use the term the slants would make people automatically assume a racial slur and not any other definition that that's out there. So uh, that's when we really wrapped it up and decided to fight. Simon, let's listen just for one second to Justice Anthony Kennedy asking your attorney in this case, uh, John Connell, exactly the question you've just raised. What would be different if uh, the band had been comprised of non-Asian members? Let's have a listen. Suppose he had uh, this hypothetical case. The facts are largely parallel to these, other than the band are non-Asians. They use makeup to exaggerate slanted eyes, and they make fun of Asians. Could the government, under a properly drawn statute, decline to register that as a trademark, in your view? They could not. First Amendment protects absolutely outrageous speech insofar as trademarks are concerned. That is correct. In addition to that, Simon, it seems to me that you had, I think, much of the court agreeing with the proposition that this is pretty classic viewpoint discrimination, right? That this is simply saying that the government can disfavor some uh, types of words when spoken by some people. Here's Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinking about this question of the word hebe and uh, what happened when uh, the trademark office both granted and didn't grant trademarks around that. The questions have concentrated on uh, viewpoint discrimination, but there's also uh, a large concern with vagueness here and the list that we have of things that were trademarked and things that weren't. Take, for example, 
One had the word heeb, and that was okay in one application, and it was not okay in another. What's the answer to this question of, you know, sometimes slant is okay, sometimes it isn't, sometimes heeb is okay, sometimes it isn't, sometimes queer is okay, sometimes it isn't. What's the answer to that? Is the answer that there's just no line here? Well, I don't think the the moral line in the sand, so to speak, should be drawn at trademark registrations. Obviously, I don't support hate speech. I don't. I, I don't want to support a racist football team or or bands that are uh, offensive. Uh, however, we have to understand that inconsistent law isn't practical. You know, the kind of elephant in the room, and, and the biggest criticism uh, that people have about my case is that if we win, then pro football is going to have their their trademark registration come back. My reply is that. You know, we sometimes become so obsessed with punishing villainous characters that we forget the collateral damage is actually experienced by marginalized groups. And we shouldn't punish them for that. Dan Snyder made explicitly clear that whether he has a trademark registration or not, he's not going to change the name. You know, there there are certainly other avenues to, to pursue changing the name, and I definitely agree with them. We should not support that team. However, you know, we have differing opinions of how to go about that change. If we write our laws and design them around the most privileged members of society, i.e., uh, you know, a billionaire football team owner, then we, we forget about the people who don't have the same resources to make an appeal, to, to fight uh, a wrongful accusation. And those tend to be, you know, members of the LGBTQ community and people of color because those are the people who tend to engage in the work of reappropriation to subvert discrimination. And yet those are the same ones being denied based on their own identities. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Simon, I think the big argument on the other side, and I think we heard this at argument from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, who's incredibly, I think, sensitive to the sensibilities of minorities. Uh, She really said, look, call yourself whatever you want, but why does the government have to put its imprimatur, its blessing on this name? In other words, we're not keeping you from calling the ban the slants. We're just saying uh, the government uh, doesn't bless this. Uh, Let's listen to her for a moment. This is a bit different than most cases. No one's stopping your client from calling itself the slants. No one's stopping them from advertising themselves that way or signing contracts that way or engaging in any activity except that of stopping someone else from using the same trademark. But even that they could do because you don't need a registered trademark to sue under the Latinum Act's um, entitlement for the confusion of the public in the use of any kind of registered or unregistered mark. Um, if you, if another band called themselves slants, they would be subject 
to deceptive advertisements because they wouldn't be this slant. Um, so there is a big difference. You are asking the government to endorse your name to the extent of protecting it in a way that it chooses not to. Simon, what's your response to that? What's your response to, look, the government has a, a moral role to play in not uh, blessing terms that may be derogatory? I would argue that it isn't a blessing. Because if it truly is a blessing, then the government, if, if the government truly cared about fighting racism through the trademark regime, then they should have began with canceling trademark registrations for white supremacist groups not necessarily denying one for an anti-racist band. You know, if, if the government truly cared about that, then there's all manner of things that, that could be <laughs> extrapolated from there. For example, does the government bless all the offensive pornographic companies that are, are out there? Do they truly embrace the other uh, sports teams that depict human beings, Native Americans as mascots? I, I wouldn't believe so. You know, it, it, I understand it's a concern, but when you compare it with things like the copyright regime, uh, you know, the copyrights receive government protection as well and a blessing of sorts. But nobody truly believes that they are conveying some kind of government message. Uh, finally, the other thing I would argue is that not only does it burden a, a person to, to kind of have this rejection, but it chills speech. We've had numerous business owners have to give up on their dreams and close up shop. Uh, you know, I get contacted by bands all the time and small business owners who are accused of violating Section 2A of the Lanham Act, who have to either give up on their dreams or, or sometimes declare bankruptcy for investing so much money into the business because the government thinks it may disparage. Not that it actually disparages, but it may be disparaging. An example uh, would be a Japanese restaurant owner who contacted me because he had his trademark registration denied for the word fuku, uh, which is F-U-K-U, uh, a Japanese word for joy. Um, they said, well, it may look too much like an obscenity. Um, of course, they had no qualms about uh, proving the trademark registration for French Connection UK, who always goes by F-C-U-K something that looks like the exact same obscenity. Again, you have people who are trying to embody their own cultural heritage and being denied for doing so. And that's a really important thing to consider when we think about how we create laws. Laws shouldn't just be about equality. They should also be about equity. And if they're placing a social burden on marginalized groups, then those laws need to be reconsidered. My last question to you, Simon, and I know you're not uh, an attorney, but there has been criticism of what you're trying to do, uh, especially from you know some other Asian American groups uh, who say, "Look, yes, what you're doing in your case is really honorable, but you are flinging open the gates for the Washington Redskins and other groups, and that you know, in an attempt to do good for yourself and your band, you're ignoring what it means to." inject into the conversation, especially at a moment where there's been a huge uptick in racially motivated hate crimes, injecting language into the conversation that are going to net out to be bad for minority groups. What's your response? 
I think that's a false assumption. I mean, when I went about going about this trademark battle, I traveled to 34 different states to speak to over 140 social justice organizations, uh, confederated tribes and tribal leaders, activists, and others to really get their opinion and their advice about approaching this particular case. And I had overwhelming support from almost all of them. In fact, the same group that opposes me, uh, NAPABA, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, um, for five years supported my ban and at their national convention told me that they had many fans there and that they planned on supporting me in my fight, uh, only to turn around a few months later to reverse that decision. You know, again, those groups are afraid of the larger context of like opening the can of worms because they're afraid of the trademark registration being regained by the football team. But I would also argue the same thing that they often tell me. Whether or not I have a trademark registration, those hate groups are free to continue using hate speech. Nothing is going to change that. But if we use trademark registration as a way to try and deter it, which we, number one, know it doesn't work in doing so, um, then what ends up happening is we're chilling the speech and the social justice efforts of those trying to make a positive change for our society. And to me, we should be more concerned about supporting those groups than we should be about punishing others for disagreeable speech. Simon Tam is the bassist and founder of The Slants. He's also, I believe, the first rock star we've had on the show. Simon, thank you for joining us on Amicus this week. Thank you so much. We're now going to turn to a second case argued at the high court this week on the same day, in fact, as the Tam case we just talked about. This case dates back to the days after 9-11. And even though more than 15 years have elapsed since that time, the case itself actually raises questions that may become salient again if Donald Trump's talk of establishing a national registry or database based on religion or country of origin really is in the cards. Ziegler versus Abbasi is an appeal by a group of mostly Muslim men charging that former Attorney General John Ashcroft, former FBI Director Robert Mueller, and former INS Commissioner James Ziegler, along with two wardens at the Federal Detention Center where some detainees were held, can be sued by these detainees for their treatment in the months after 9-11. Now, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals found that the case could proceed, but the government appealed, and it's that appeal that the court considered this week. One slight oddity in this case is that two of the eight justices, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, recused themselves from the case, presumably because they were involved in the earlier proceedings in their former jobs as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in Sotomayor's case and the U.S. Solicitor General in Kagan's. This means there were only six judges hearing arguments this week. Joining us now is Rachel Mirapol. She's a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, where she works on prisoners' rights, national security, and First Amendment issues. She argued this case on Wednesday. It was her first at the high court, and she argued on behalf of her client, Amer Abbasi. In a twist, I should note that Rachel is the granddaughter of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm sure you have been asked that a million times, but wow, you're really the granddaughter of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. 
I am. Uh, so <laughs> no stranger to injustice. Okay, well said. Um, can you just tell us first and foremost about your client, Amir Abbasi, and what happened to him in the weeks and months after 9-11? Yeah, so basically, right after 9-11, the FBI set up a tip line, and people were calling in from all over the country with tips like, my neighbor's Arab and he keeps strange hours, I think he might be a terrorist. Um, and on that sort of information, hundreds of men were swept up, including Amr Abbasi, who came to the attention of the FBI after a postal worker at the New Jersey DMV reported that an Arab man had left a false social security card there. This led to an apartment where Amr was staying as a house guest. Um, he was arrested and designated as of interest to the terrorism investigation, not based on any reason to suspect that he actually had had any involvement in terrorism, but because he fit the profile of the 9-11 hijackers, Muslim Arab men who had violated the immigration law. He was held in the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn, uh, placed in a solitary confinement unit there, beaten by guards, harassed, kept from practicing his religion, deprived of sleep, deprived of exercise for months until he was cleared of any connection to terrorism and then deported. And this is not a fact that's in dispute in this case, right? I mean, the DOJ itself has conceded that detainees were treated horrifically in complete violation of whatever protocols we would use. So what, what is their argument about why they are not on the hook for this? Right. The, the issue is really whether individuals who were abused and discriminated in this way can even get into court. So we have um, the Solicitor General under the Obama administration defending Bush-era officials in just before the Trump presidency begins, saying that federal officials, even when they violate clearly established law, like denying the right to equal protection and um, allowing for the abuse of prisoners, that even when that happens, individuals should not be able to sue those federal officials for damages um, when their rights are violated. And this brings us, I'm afraid, dear listeners, to Bivens, because there are three <laughs> big issues in the case. But I think the one that the court was most focused on this week is uh, whether this fits into the confines of the doctrine established in a case called Bivens. Rachel, can you just for listeners who are not necessarily completely conversant with what that means, explain to us, first of all, what that law is and then whether you were asking for a radical extension of that doctrine? Sure. So Bivens is a doctrine that allows individuals to sue federal officials when they violate the Constitution. Now, I think most people would assume that we have that right. Um, we can certainly sue state officials when they violate the Constitution. But what's strange about the system that's set up is that a federal law allows you to sue state officials. There is no federal law that allows you to sue federal officials. Rather, the court ruled in a case called Bivens that it could imply the right to sue federal officials under the Constitution itself. And that ruling came in a Fourth Amendment case. But ever since the first ruling, the court 
um, expanded the doctrine into some other areas, allowing, for example, federal prisoners to sue their jailers when they are abused in detention um, and allowing individuals to sue over equal protection violations. So the question is, how far does that doctrine extend? Um, there's only been three cases in which the Supreme Court has explicitly recognized that an individual could bring a lawsuit for damages against federal officials. But the lower courts have allowed many other lawsuits to go forward, sort of based on the assumption that those kind of actions are allowed. In the last 30 years, however, the courts have been slowly... Um, Pulling back from the doctrine, especially the Supreme Court. And recently, the Supreme Court, anytime it sees what it thinks is an extension of Bivens, it has rejected that extension. So really, one of the central questions in the case is, is this an extension of Bivens? Are we asking for something new here? And, and we say that we're not. This is a case about individuals who are detained in federal custody in a federal prison in New York City. It's not a case about mistreatment, um, you know, in a military context. Um, it's not about something that happened overseas. This is about what you can do to individuals present in this country in a federal prison. Of course, even if it is an extension of Bivens, so the second question that the court will have to grapple with is, if it's an extension, should the right be extended? Should my clients be allowed to sue for what happened to them? Um, and I can address that question if you'd like as well. Well, before you do, I feel like I want you to clarify one thing for listeners who are not clear on the distinction between what rights you have as a U.S. citizen or someone who is here in some legal capacity and someone like your client who I think admittedly had violated, you know, his his green card and was here illegally. Does that matter? And what rights do you have as a non-citizen in this country who has let's say in this instance, completely violated the conditions of your visa. Yeah, so it does and it doesn't in a really sort of strange way. Nobody is arguing that my clients have different rights to be free from abuse in prison. It's clear that non-citizens, even when they are here unlawfully, have the right not to be abused in detention. Um, this is this is a proposition that's been established for many years. Now, that said, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the same right to sue if that right is violated. Um, so one of the arguments that the government is making in this case is that because what happened after 9-11 was sort of national security policy that relates to immigration, and because Congress has power over immigration, that the courts really shouldn't get involved, that it's not proper for the courts to imply the ability for non-citizens to sue over sort of immigration policy, especially when that policy encroaches on sort of national security concerns. Now, our response to that is that this actually isn't about immigration at all. It's not about whether people should be allowed in or out of the country. It's about how you treat them when they are here. And if the Constitution cannot be a way for non-citizens to deter abuse and detention, to deter law enforcement excesses, then what protects them? What keeps law enforcement from, you know, doing the worst thing that we can imagine to millions of individuals who are here and vulnerable? 
But that raises the question, and I think that they roughed you up a little bit about this at oral argument, Rachel. Well, why can't we just give them other protections? Why is this the remedy, you know, to be able to sue in his personal capacity? John Ashcroft seems like a pretty excessive remedy. Why can't you, I think the Chief Justice was like, why can't you just bring a habeas corpus action? So what's your response to that? Yeah, and there are two different responses there. First of all, in this actual situation, one of the um, policies that was being implemented by the government against my clients was that they were kept from accessing the outside world, including lawyers, while they were in detention. So they were initially subjected to a complete communications blackout, no access to phones, no access to visits, no access to anybody. That blackout was lifted after a matter of weeks, but their access to the outside world was still extremely restricted. It was very difficult for them to get lawyers to try to bring any sort of cases to challenge what was happening to them while it was happening. And when a few were able to bring uh, some challenges to their treatment and their detention in the courts, the response was sort of to clear those individuals more quickly and deport them, to keep the federal courts from examining what was going on. So that means not only that it's difficult for an individual to actually get relief, but perhaps more fundamentally, because the court cannot get involved, there's no way to rule on the legality of what is happening. And there's no way to deter future officials from doing the same. Now, one of the core purposes of the Bivens Doctrine, as the Supreme Court has recognized it, has always been that it is a way to deter future illegality. That if you want to keep individual federal officers from violating people's rights, an individual lawsuit that puts them on the hook for damages is really the only way to do it. And if that uh, action is not available today, as we move into uncertain times, um, I fear that there will be nothing to restrain the worst of executive abuses. Now, I want to play for you. This is the hard part of this show, Rachel, is we're now going to play for you audio just casting you back into, you know, your breakdown from Wednesday. Uh, but I want to play for you, John Roberts, questioning you on a principle I think you just actually flicked at. But but let's listen to it more explicitly, because I think what he's saying is we certainly want to deter future illegality, but we don't want to terrorize people out of doing their jobs and uh, creating good policy, particularly in difficult times. Let's listen to him. When you have the attorney general, the director of the FBI, the director of INS, sitting down and making, what are we going to do to respond to this crisis? And, and people in the were uh, 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 of old enough, 9-11, sort of have a better sense of what that uh, uh, crisis was like. And if you imply a Bivens actions, one of the things they're going to enter into there, what is best, what is appropriate, and presumably also what's constitutional, they're going to say, well, gosh, if, you know, I'm wrong, I'm going to, I'm going to be sued, not because I'm the attorney general, but as an, in an, as an individual. And I, and I, part of the policy that we've announced is that we don't want people forming policy to have to worry about they're going to have to, to pay, uh, if, if they're, if they're, if the policy is found, uh, uh, infirm. So, Rachel, what's your response? What do we do about the fact that people say, I'm just working in good faith, I'm just a warden in a prison, I'm executing policy someone else gave me, that if you, in fact, get the remedy you're seeking here, all you're going to do is chill future government workers uh, from trying to do the best job they can do? 
Well, even if my clients get into court, there they will have to face another hurdle, which is called qualified immunity. Qualified immunity protects um, government officials, federal and state officials, who are sued for individual liability. What it means is that even if a federal official or a state official violates the Constitution, they cannot be held accountable unless they violate clearly established law that any reasonable officer would have known of. So basically what, what the court's concern is there is that officials might pause before violating clearly established law. I don't think that should be a concern. I'm more concerned that federal officials won't pause before they violate clearly established rights. And to the extent that we want to be sure that we protect people who you know, serve the government in good faith and are just trying to do a good job in difficult times, qualified immunity already provides that protection. And it is substantial protection. You had two, I think, robust supporters on the <laughs> array of six justices that you face this week. This is Ruth Bader Ginsburg questioning the government's lawyer on the length of the incarceration and detention. Let's listen. It's one thing, as Justice Breyer pointed out, to say you initially hold these people. But you know from day one that many of them have nothing to do with terrorists. And yet you allow that system that might have been justified in October to persist for months and months when these people are being held in the worst possible conditions of confinement. Your Honor, they are, well, they are being held in restrictive conditions of confinement, but those con- conditions are lawful as to- Rachel, how much of a difference, if any, does it make that, as you claimed, not only did this persist for a very long time, but that, in fact, after the fact, not one of the people who were detained in these sweeps was ever determined to be a threat? Do those two things make a difference for sort of this hindsight look at what the government should have done differently? I think they do. And I think they'll come into play later on in the case if we're allowed to go forward. Um, So, you know, the government will have the opportunity, if it wishes, to actually defend its use of race and religion here. They could try to prove that what they did after 9-11 was really necessary to protect national security. Now, I can't imagine how that um, argument could prevail, but they will have the opportunity to make it. And there they will be faced with some very difficult facts, including that there was no reason to suspect the 9-11 detainees of ties to terrorism when they were arrested, and that at the end of the day, none of the detainees were found to have any ties to 9-11. This investigation proved completely unsuccessful. Rachel, can you talk a little bit about the distinction between some of the uh, named officials in this case? Because it seems to me that the claims against someone like uh, John Ashcroft or Robert Mueller are really, really different from the claims against, you know, the prison warden, some of the lower level officials who I don't think could be said to have been formulating policy. In a sense, we're talking about apples and oranges, no? 
That's right. And really, the um, wardens are defending the case by saying we were just following orders. You know, we were just doing what the FBI told us we had to do. Now, we have problems with that defense as a factual matter. But even more importantly, there is no following orders defense to the Constitution. If you violate clearly established constitutional rights, whether or not someone tells you to do so, federal officials can be held accountable. And actually, every single judge so far who has considered one of our claims against the former warden, uh, Dennis Hasty, who is alleged to have allowed physical and verbal abuse of my clients for months and months at the Metropolitan Detention Center. You know, every judge who has heard those claims has agreed that they should go forward. And we very much hope that the Supreme Court agrees. But in a sense, isn't there a weird space between, you know, these high level folks who are saying, hey, we were just, you know, establishing the outlines of policy and the low level folks who are, first of all, I think in some instances now saying, I I didn't even know this was going on. There's a sort of space in the middle where it almost feels like nobody's accountable, right? Well, right. And if we allow people who are sued to point fingers at each other before the client has even had an opportunity to get to discovery, you know, so these are unsworn statements by defense attorneys saying, no, he's more responsible. No, he is without the even filing an answer to our allegations. That can't be the way that serious lawsuits are resolved. I want to listen to one last voice from the court this week, and this is Stephen Breyer. Uh, As I said, one of the two uh, sort of liberal justices uh, on the court who seemed, I think, to be in your camp this week. Here he is talking about blank checks, and we know that the language of blank checks uh, harkens back to the earliest detainee cases. Let's have a listen. I mean, I think it is an enormously important and very open question. And we can say, on the one hand, just what was said, I think everything the Chief Justice said is true. Uh, There is a problem in this time of real national emergency to over-deter people from doing what they reasonably think is necessary. And they have the authority for security, not the judges. At the same time, the law of this court correctly, I think, is, but there is no blank check even for the president. And if there is no blank check, That means sometimes they can go too far. And if they have gone too far, it is our job to say that. I want to give you a chance not just to respond to the notion that uh, the government is being given a blank check retroactively in terms of what was done to your client and other detainees swept up after 9-11, but also to talk a little bit about prospectively. Uh, We're heading into uh, a new uh, administration that has talked pretty radically and dramatically about the rights of, of Muslims, the rights of immigrants. Going forward, is there a sense in your mind that the actions post 9-11 and what may come down the pike are connected if the government is to get the blank check that you feel they're seeking here? Well, absolutely. I mean, what happens in this case is not just about whether individuals who were harmed um, will get compensation. It's also what going forward federal officials will understand they are facing if they violate the Constitution, right? So there is a difference, I think a really serious difference between understanding that one of your policies might be stopped 
might, you know, be enjoined in legal terms um, because it violates the law versus an idea that you could actually be held personally accountable for violating somebody's constitutional rights. I fear that um, one doesn't provide adequate deterrence, that just the sense that a court could rule that something can't go forward doesn't deter future officials from um, taking incredibly aggressive stances that they know may not be constitutional, um, but that they're going to do anyway. So in a time when torture, when Muslim registries are talked about as legitimate policy options, um, this is an incredibly dangerous time for the court to send a message that federal officials could violate even clearly established law and not be held personally accountable. One last question, Rachel. This was, in fact, the very last case of the Obama administration. You've already mentioned that there's some form of irony that uh, the Obama Justice Department was laying the groundwork for a pretty broad defense of government officials going forward. Was it bittersweet to be sitting in the court that day listening to what is a very, very paradoxical last case for the Obama Obama Justice Department to be arguing? Oh, sure. And I mean, the reality is that if I had been arguing it just a few weeks later, the attorney on the other side would be probably approaching it in a very different way. Now, what the Obama administration is arguing for is incredibly broad. Um, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be broader. And I, I wonder what kind of uh, argument I, I would have come up against if this had happened in February. Rachel Mirapol is a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, where she works on prisoners' rights, national security, and First Amendment issues. Rachel, thank you so very much for your time this week on Amicus. Oh, thank you. And that is going to do it for today's inauguration weekend edition of Amicus. Maybe a good point to pause and think about the extent to which law and lawyers and the Constitution and checks and balances are going to be really useful going forward for all of us. Something to think about. We are eager, as ever, to hear your thoughts and your questions. Our email is amicus at slate.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And we love your feedback. Remember, you can always catch up on any episode of Amicus you may have missed on our show page. You'll find that at slate.com slash amicus. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll also find transcripts of every show there. If you're not, you should be. And you can sign up for a free trial at slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you, as ever, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Special thanks today to Lindsay Cradowell for her engineering support. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our whole roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Hey, I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We will be back with you in two weeks with another edition of Amicus. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.